This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we fill you in on what's going to be coming up in the next seven days. And it's an unusual edition today because, as you'll know, the whole week is going to be dominated by two interlinked issues. The fallout from the shocking policing of the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common at the weekend, and the government's police crime sentencing and courts bill, which goes to second reading in Parliament today, Monday, and has been attacked as a major assault on the freedom to protest. With me to explain it all is Ros Taylor. Morning, Ros. How are you? Oh, not too bad yet. Good. Okay, let's let's talk about the vigil first and, and, and what it means and then move on to the bill. This morning's papers are pretty brutal. Shaming of the Met on the mail, defiant Met chief refuses to quit in The Guardian. How significant a policing screw up is this in you know in, com- in comparison to the really big ones, the, the poll text protests or grieve and so on? Because it absolutely shocked everybody, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And of course, it wasn't nearly as violent as those protests. It wasn't at nearly such a large scale. But the reason why it's such a big story is because of the context. Firstly, that a police officer has been charged with the murder of Sarah Everard, and this vigil was in memory of her. So they were going to have to be very, very careful about how they policed this vigil. And also because this is uh, this was a protest by women. Protest looks very different when women do it. If you think about the history of female protest, from the suffragettes to Rosa Parks sitting on the bus, women at Ford Anglia, and now people like the female protesters in Belarus and Pussy Riot, there's a particular quality that female protest has, which is very vulnerable. Yesterday, I saw a tweet that somebody had, had, had written about the protest at Clapham Common, and she said it was just women and flowers. The whole point of female protest is this vulnerability that makes it particularly sympathetic to the public. Mm. And a, a lot of people said that the thing that really disgusted them, them was that the police just trampled straight over the flowers. They trampled over the, the tributes that had been left by the bandstand. Yeah, that was that was very, very symbolic. So what sort of a look is, not to sort of just purely go straight to the politics of it, but what sort of a look is this when your flagship law and order bill is going through? Because I saw, you know, watching the, the women who'd, who'd uh, come to the vigil, and it wasn't a protest, it was a vigil. This was a huge cross-section. It was absolutely everybody in London and the wider southeast area. There was all the protests up and, up and down the country. It just felt like, you know, very much the opposite of the kind of people you see going to protests. It was like the police had waded into the general public. Yes, it was very... Striking. I mean, the fact that the Duchess of Cambridge turned up, which I could scarcely believe when I heard it, because I honestly thought that it was too potentially too politicised a, a, a vigil for her to be at. But she did come and she did lay flowers. And there was a very striking difference around the country in the way that it was policed. In places like Nottingham, the police were able to come to agreement with protesters and they stood 
apart, socially distanced, and it was all very peaceful. I went to one of the sites in um, Crouch End in North London, and uh, just just to have a look and to uh, to look at the display there it was dusk, so there were candles and people had put a few posters there. It was very quiet. Only about four or five other people, other women there. And that was a completely different uh, experience. And clearly the police, there was no sign of them. They had totally kept away. In fact, when I tweeted a picture of the um, memorial, as it was, uh, with the place and the time, I had actually got liked by the local police force, which I was (laughs) not expecting. So clearly there are differences of opinion in the mess about what is acceptable protest. Because if you remember, we were told not to go along at all. And yet clearly people did. Mm. I mean, uh, anybody who's ever been to a protest knows that uh, you get the the same old fringe turns up to everything and attempts to piggyback on parasitical protesters. And we all know the issues and we all know the hobby horses. There were mobile phone videos of um, police and men scuffling on Clapham Common. Do we think that this had any genuine effect on the decision to to try and close the protest down was it ineptitude or was it an automatic response to what's happening around the fringe of the vigil rather than a kind of an overt decision to steam in from above do we do we know exactly what happened yet no we don't know exactly Mm -hmm. what happened the police were fairly hands-off for a while or they were very visible and then at some point they decided they'd had enough and People needed to go home. They started warning people. Then they uh, moved in and started manhandling women away. There were various women trying to speak and there was anger at the police. So really that was when things began to escalate. That was clearly when things began to go wrong for the Met because had they just left things alone, there was no you know, massive clash or physically violent clash between the women there to respect the vigil and the anti-masker brigade or the, you know any other political faction. It wasn't some kind of clash between two different sets of protesters. It hadn't reached that stage at all. So it was clearly a police decision that at this point, it had gone on long enough, social distancing regulations were being broken, they therefore had the right to move in and break it up. Cressida Dick says she's not going to resign and she's attacked armchair critics this morning. Has she read the room appropriately? I'm not at all surprised that she's dug in in this way. And the reason she has is that in the context of policing during this pandemic, this is not an unusual thing to have happened. We know what happened to protesters, anti-lockdown protesters in central London. They are removed in a very similar way. The police have done things like finding people driving to a place for exercise. They have really gone very far in many circumstances in trying to enforce the lockdown laws. And so you can see that as far as the Met were concerned, this was not very different. This was people gathering together, closely packed together, albeit with masks, and breaking social distancing regulations. And they therefore felt it that was their duty to step in and stop that. But of course, they did not read the room. And they did not remember that this was very different because it was about a woman who may have been killed by a policeman. And it was a protest, as I said earlier, that was by women, and that therefore there was very little possibility that it would turn violent because that doesn't tend to happen at these times types of protest so it was a massive misreading of the mood um prissy patel is 
looking shocked and asking for an independent investigation. Uh, Sadiq Khan says that the scenes on Clapham Common were completely unacceptable. Who is actually responsible here? Because the Home Secretary is, appoints the Chief Constable, but the Mayor is the Police and, and Crime Commission, and we've seen plenty of sort of Tory outriders trying to pin this on Khan. Yeah, it's not Khan's fault. Khan isn't responsible, uh, responsible for these kinds of operational policing decisions day to day. Where does the buck stop then? Where does the buck stop? The buck stops with two groups of people. One is the Met for the decisions they made on the ground in handling the protest, which were, to say the least, blind to the, the implications of what they were doing. The other is the government, which, the whole government, not just Priti Patel, which passed laws outlawing social distancing and made it clear that they wanted the police to enforce them. You know, people are rightly saying that this is not about lockdown. No, it's not about lockdown. It's about the laws that we have put in place to curtail the right of people to gather. And those laws did not allow and have not allowed since beginning of January for public protest. It has basically outlawed them. And in all the discussion about this, you cannot ignore that fact. It is illegal to hold a public protest. And as we're going to discuss later, it's going to be illegal, become very, very difficult to hold a public protest in the future because of what the government is doing. And we do need to interrogate everybody in society how where how we've got to this stage where public protest is illegal and we didn't quite seem to notice it how do you think this is going to develop this week is it going to is the anger going to abate without somebody carrying the can i mean you would imagine you know we, we sort of joke that nobody resigns for anything anymore but this was you know you could not have crafted a, a worse look at a worse time for the mess is this going to abate without somebody carrying the can in a public way my hunch is that no one will have to carry the can at this moment. Uh, that's partly because the government is in a very good place in terms of public opinion at the moment. It's not facing a lot of pressure. And I think people's attention will quickly move on to the next thing. I don't think an individual will be forced to carry the canvas because, as I previously explained, yes, it was an awful, awful policing decision, but ultimately, the police were enforcing the law as we understand it. And so it will be very difficult in that context for the Home Secretary, illiberal a Home Secretary as she is, and the government to go after them. Do you think that young women's memories will be that short, though? Because, I mean, all the horrific events of this week, I mean, we we, we tweeted over the weekend, the matter just radicalised a generation of young women, the very women mm. that you would hope would trust the police, you know, the cross-section of, of, of London, all classes, young professionals, as well as, uh, you know, and, and, and people who've come to London to work, as well as, you know, the, reg- the regular population. And the shock, particularly for people who don't come into contact with the police very much, was, was palpable. Yeah. And I think this is actually the start of something much more complicated in the way that people think about protesting. And this plays into the whole policing bill. It will become much more difficult to organise a protest legally. People will start, particularly as lockdown eases, and clearly we don't have the issues with social distancing anymore. People will start testing the law, finding out, and we'll go into more detail, I think in a few minutes, about, about what the law will actually prevent them doing. But they will start testing it 
they people will seek to get arrested in order to find out what is legal and what is not. And this may well be an ongoing theme, not just in terms of vigils about the rights of women and about male violence, but across a whole range of different different issues that may spark protests. I think it will become a running theme and it will become something that will start to haunt the government and they will struggle to deal with. Let's talk about the bill. You mentioned, you know, that provisions, it's very wide ranging. Um, It's all encompassing. It takes in everything from the the right to protest to, you know, pretty much every provision of, of criminal justice. What are the problematic elements? Well, there are many. And the most problematic element is massively widening the criteria which the police can use to ban a protest. And it basically means if you annoy people in the vicinity, if you are making too much noise, if you are, I think even the word impact is used, if the impact of the demonstration is deemed to be too big, then the police can decide that it shouldn't be allowed. And of course, that goes against the whole point of protest. The whole point of protest is that it is heard and it is seen. And while this legislation is evidently an attempt to crack down on protests the kind that Extinction Rebellion made in the last two or three years, disrupting public transport, preventing people from going about their daily business. While it's clearly an attack on that, of course, the result of that is to crack down on almost all protest. There are a whole load of other things in the bill which are deeply objectionable, lowering the threshold before which people can be removed from the country when they are deported, if they're not British British citizens, when they've committed an offence. There's a lot wrong with this bill. And it's a shame, frankly, that it has taken what happened on Saturday night for not just the left, but the whole of society to realise what is wrong with this bill. We really managed to take our eye off the ball with this. This is a huge, huge thing. And I was shocked that the Labour Party was going to abstain on this reportedly until the public mood changed on Sunday and it became clear that it couldn't. The Keir Starmer is a former director of public prosecutions. He knows exactly, he should have known exactly what was in this bill. It is astonishing to me that he could have backed it, knowing what he did. Now, you can argue that it's unhelpful to say that now that he's done the right thing and decided to oppose it. But frankly, we all have to ask ourselves very difficult questions on the left as to why this was being ignored, because it, there were only a very few people, of course, you know, our friend and colleague Ian Dunt included, who were pointing out what was wrong with this bill. It was widely ignored and still on the front pages today. You're seeing a lot of outrage at the way the Met behaved, but you're not seeing outrage at the laws the government wants to pass, which is just what the Met is going to act upon. Mm. And that is what people should be really annoyed about. Yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's a guarantee that you, you, you'd see more of this on a much more regular basis. And there's also a really disturbing element, which gives uh, the Home Secretary, whomever that may be, power through statutory instruments to unilaterally change the definition of serious dis- disruption. You know, what does that exactly count to? It effectively gives the Home Secretary power to define a protest as, as too disruptive to take place. 
which is astonishing. Yes, on a case by case on a case by case basis, basically. So you can decide at any time that this is going to be too disruptive. And of course, this is the whole point of protest. Mm. It is disruptive, and it has to be because it's the last resort in a democracy. There may be protests that we vehemently disagree with. You know, there have been protests, anti-lockdown protests, which I don't agree with, which I wouldn't go to, which I don't support. But they people nonetheless have the right to go to them. And if we if we get rid of that right and we ensure that the police can decide whenever and wherever people are able to gather in groups and make a political point, that is just an appalling place for a society to be in. It really is. And it is not very different from what is happening in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, in Poland, where Orban and his collaborators are making laws which essentially have a chilling effect on people's ability to participate in civil society, whether it's the media, whether it's protests. It becomes very, very difficult to do anything legally. Protest itself is not formally outlawed. So you can get round the official legislation that, you know, the Human Rights Act and so on in our case, that allows it. But it becomes so difficult that no one wants to take the risk and pay the price, literally, of finding out whether the protest is legal or not, and then the risk of being arrested and fined or sent to jail if they infringe the rules when they're there. Do you think that it, it's possible that this bill might be in the process of blowing up in the government's face? Because after what happened at the weekend, I mean, the, you know, these are, in many cases, these are the daughters of conservative voters who are being thrown around like bags of flour. You know, these are, this, is, this wasn't just the left protesting on Clapham Common. It was, the, it was women across the whole of London and the southeast, many of whom you would imagine would, you know, with the fact that, you know, the, the male has reacted so violently against this. You know, they're not all going to be on the political left, and many of them would be, uh, the Conservative Party would hope, future Conservative voters. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who have been on marches and protests in the last few years, <laughs> you and me among yeah. them, um, and many of those people on marches, as we know, don't usually go on marches. They don't consider themselves the kinds of purse people who protest, but they they can be, and they will be, because the way that this this legislation is ultimately a provocation, and it will be seized upon by people who want to defend the right to protest, and rightly so, in order to find out exactly what the law will and won't permit. And this is what we've really fallen foul of here. It wasn't clear what the law really said about protest. It, It was clear that public gatherings were outlawed, but it was impossible, of course, for the government to ban protest per se, because that would have been a fundamental infringement of human rights. So you've got a fundamental contradiction there. And it will become very important for people to find out and test the limits legally of what is allowed, and rightly so. And I hope they do that, because it's very important that they do. Within Parliament, and particularly within the Conservative Party, we've, we've, we've seen sort of like slight twitches of that the, the new intake might be kind of developing elements of independent mindedness. Can you see any kind of rebellion within the Conservative Party against this bill. I mean, you've got, there's still some remnants of a sort of centre to the party which did care about civil liberties. And the party's right. I mean, Steve Baker's tweet after the police waited into the vigil was change lockdown laws now, which is a strange conclusion to draw. I mean, there are still two wings to the party. Can you see any kind of a pushback on this? 
Possibly, yeah. I mean, I can see the sort of David Davis-like uh, individuals st- standing up a little bit. But the Conservative Party has become very cowed, and many of the people who would have opposed this have left. It is fundamentally a party that is enthralled to its leader and enthralled to the very right-wing faction that is represented by Priti Patel. I would be very surprised if they did have the balls to stand up and oppose the the bill itself, because they don't, you know, it looks bad to, um, you know, drag away a few harmless women at a protest, but that's a very uh, different thing from the bill itself. And I don't think, I, I think there's a, there's a peculiar combination during, which we've seen for the past year or so of authoritarianism and civil liberties, which the Conservative Party has not been able to reconcile in itself. We've seen it over prorogation, for example, incredibly authoritarian act to prorogue Parliament, and yet everyone is still happy to describe Boris Johnson as a libertarian, you know, a fundamentally uh, a fan of civil liberties. Big contradiction there, which unfortunately no one has ever forced them to confront recently, and I'm not sure that they will be forced to confront now, particularly when it would take a very big rebellion in the Commons, despite Labour's opposition to overturn this bill. But as I say, it is a huge mistake. They will find it being tested every step of the way. Well, just in closing, uh, we are coming up to the anniversary of the very first lockdown. So we're going to be seeing a lot of COVID sceptics, a lot of lockdown sceptics, a lot of uh, warnings, not all of them in bad faith that the provisions brought in during an emergency will be extended beyond the emergency. Do you think that's going to feed into the argument over the bill? Yeah, for a few it will. It will be very much a, it's all gone too far. Let's just stop it now and then we won't have this problem anymore. And uh, uh, let's just just release all restrictions. Um, I think the government will be very resistant to that. Um, Clearly, public opinion is still very much behind a gradual easing of lockdown. I think Steve Baker and the COVID um, group that he leads are fools if they don't realise that. People are, yeah, sure, many of them are pissed off that they can't go to the pub, but they're prepared to wait a bit longer and they've got a timetable and we're all waiting to see what will happen to infection rates now that things are beginning to ease a bit. Uh, I think they misjudge the public mood if they think right now that people are really, really agitating for a faster release from lockdown. Well, there was a further march on Parliament yesterday evening, Sunday. There's another one planned for five o'clock today, Monday. We'll see how this plays out. It's clearly going to be the big thing of the week. Um, We'll be back tomorrow with the panel show uh, as we discuss the events of today. But, Roz, um, thank you for getting up so early for start your week. Pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can always, of course, get it early by backing us on Patreon. You'll get free access to the Bunker's first solo live Zoom as well. It's on Thursday, the 25th of March. Yasmin Saran, Arthur Snell, Ahir Shah and I will be joined by show favourite Brian Class, our unofficial US politics correspondent, for an evening of high-quality doomsaying. So search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up or see our Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>